let me begin simply. If, if you are visiting here this morning for the first time, or uh, maybe you've uh, been absent from church for the past few weeks, or, or I don't know, maybe you just, just haven't been paying attention, I am, I am the new assistant pastor here. We got here about a month ago. And I want to begin by saying, uh, on behalf of my wife, Josie, uh, I want to begin by saying thank you. And I uh, thought about yesterday afternoon all the things I had to be grateful for about being here. But if I stood up here and told you even part of those things, we wouldn't get to the sermon. So I'm just simply going to ask uh, from you that uh, my prayer, Josie's prayer, has been in uh, over the course of the coming years or whatever it may be, our prayer is that we will show you by working beside you, working alongside you, working with you, working for you, um, that we will show you how grateful to God and to you we are for being here. It is a, uh, a privilege and honor, and I, I simply want to begin by saying thank you. Now for today, uh, I get the opportunity to preach to you this morning, Hal's on vacation uh, he will be here next Sunday, but he'll be getting here later in the week, and um, I have the opportunity to speak to you this Sunday and next Sunday, and just want to give you some idea where we're going. First of all, this morning, we're going to look at uh, a passage found in Matthew 17, and we're going to talk about the nature of faith, what it means to believe, um, and hopefully we'll be encouraged, challenged, whatever, to take our eyes off of ourselves and, and focus more and more on uh, the person of Jesus Christ. That's this week. Next week, I want us to take an extended look at who we are to focus in on, which is the, the person and work of Jesus himself. I, uh, the goal would be, as it is every Sunday, but, but even from this particular text next week, uh, our prayer is that we would behold the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. So that's where we're going. We're going to start there this morning. We'll end there next week. But let's begin today by looking at our passage printed for you in your bulletin, Matthew chapter 17. Uh, before we read that, let me, let me give you a little context. Jesus has been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's what the Bible refers to it. He's been up on the mountain with uh, James, John, and Peter. And for a limited amount of time, the glory of God seen in Jesus uh, became unveiled. Where Peter, James, and John got to actually look at the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Where um, glory overwhelmed them. The glory overwhelmed them so much they, they didn't really understand what was going on. And after that experience, they're coming down from the mountain. And that's where we are here in Matthew chapter 17. So let me, let me read this for us this morning. 17 verses 14 through 20. Hear now the reading of God's word. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son for he's an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water, and I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. 
And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that where your people are gathered, you are there also found in your word. I ask this morning that you would soften our hearts, that we would hear from you. That the the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, that it would be pleasing to you that you would receive glory that we would be encouraged and challenged, convicted. And most of all, that we would see Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So let me begin by asking you a couple of questions. Have you ever thought about what goes into knowing something? I mean, how do you know anything for sure? How do you know what is real? I, I realize I'm a little bit behind the, the power curve when it comes to to seeing movies, I usually don't go to movies at the theater because it costs too much. So I, I wait for the, you know, I wait for them to come out on Netflix. But when you watch movies like The Matrix or movies like Inception, the the whole concept there is what's real. Do some of you wrestle with questions concerning what is real and what is true? Because we do live in a world, even as Hal said last week. We live in a a doubtful world, don't we? Maybe some of you are at a stage in your life when you're having to make some decisions on your own, and they're not purely ethical decisions. They're not decisions about what's right and wrong. They're they're more of decisions about what what is best, what's going to be better for me or better for somebody else. Maybe you're a Christian here this morning, and you have been for some time. But you're not as confident as you used to be in what it is you believe. You see, we live in a skeptical world. We live in a skeptical age. I think that does have something to do with um, social media, right? All these stories coming in front of us. We're wondering, is that really true? Did that really happen? From a more philosophical sense, there's a a philosopher that that some of us read, Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor. This is how he describes our world today. He says, we live in a day when the temptation for the believer is to doubt. And every once in a while, you will find large pockets of unbelievers, even atheists, and they are tempted to believe. What? What Charles Taylor is saying is we live in a day where the temptation for us as believers is to doubt, but we'll run into a lot of people that they want to believe in something bigger than themselves. And, and when I start reading comments like that, I, I start to get a little bit overwhelmed by the, the complicatedness of the world that we live in, because it seems to be very complicated. Then I'm drawn back into the world of Scripture, and I'm looking at the lives of the disciples and looking at them as everyday people because that's what they are in the Bible. 
men, women, mothers, fathers, children. And I am reminded when I'm drawn back into the world of the Bible that while the context may have changed, some of the circumstances are different. The people are pretty much the same. In fact, the questions that they were asking and even some of the answers that they are given, they're pretty much the same today. The bottom line here is people were skeptical back then as well. That's why I like this passage that's before us today because we have three things going on in this passage and I I think they're, they're fun to look at. First of all, They're interesting to look at. First of all, we have a father who has a sick son, and he is hurting because his son is hurting. In other words, we have a father with a big problem, and he can't solve the problem. That's the first thing that we see. The second thing that we see is there is a solution to the problem, and of course that solution is the person of Jesus Christ. What's most interesting to me, though, is in between the father with a problem that he can't fix on his own, in between the solution to the problem is what we have, all these folks standing around wondering what in the world is going on. That's what we see in Matthew chapter 17, the verses that we read. And if that's not a picture of the world that we live in, I don't know what is. The world that we live in, problems that we have that we simply can't seem to fix on our own. As Christians, we say that there is a solution to that problem, and that solution is a person. And all around us, to include in here and outside, there are all sorts of people that just aren't sure, how is all this working out? So what I want to do this morning is I want us to look at the situation, and then I want us to draw some some implications from the story that we have read here this morning. Let's look at that. If you, have your, if you have your bulletins, I am going to draw your attention to the text there. Because the first thing that you see in verse 14, 15, and 16 is you see that you have a loving father who loves his son and he wants his son to be okay. Look at it. When they came to the crowd, that's Jesus, Peter, James, and John. They're coming to the crowd. A man comes up to him and kneels before him and says, Lord, have mercy on my son. Have mercy, for he is an epileptic. He suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire, often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. You see a father who's humble. You see a father who is respectful, and, and he comes to Jesus. And I know you have to assume that he's heard about Jesus before, otherwise he wouldn't have gone to the disciples for help. So he comes, and he kneels down before Jesus. And what you see is a man in agony for his child. And he, and he says this. He says, take pity on my son. Don't let it go by without realizing that he's saying, take pity on me too. It's not just his son that is overwhelming him because, because his son hurts, he hurts. He's begging for his needs, the needs of his son to be addressed. I, I do want to draw attention to in Matthew, by the way, this, this passage This story is told in Mark and Luke as well. There are some differences in the story. Um, One difference is Matthew at first says this is an epileptic boy. The Greek word is actually moonstruck. It's where we get this idea of lunar. And and really all Matthew and lunacy, right? 
the moon. Matthew is drawing attention to the fact that in the ancient world, demon possession and sickness, they were, they were often very closely related because they didn't know what was going on. So this boy, who is described as an epileptic, he's throwing himself into the fire, he's throwing himself into the water. His son's life is always in danger. The emphasis here is the boy had it bad and there was nothing that he or his father could do to fix the problem. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a situation in your life where you had a problem and you just didn't have the resources to fix it yourself? How does that make you feel? I, I got to believe that if you're even five years old, you've been there. Otherwise, our five-year-olds wouldn't always be saying, Mommy, Mommy, Daddy, Daddy, right? They could handle it on their own. Gets harder as you get older, though, doesn't it? The first part of the story is we have a human being, we have a person who has a problem and he can't fix the problem. But there is a solution. Matthew is very, very succinct. If you read Mark, if you read Luke, they talk about all the details of the healing, but this is what Matthew says. First of all, he says, faithless, twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And he says, bring him to me. And Jesus immediately rebukes the demon. The demon comes out of him and the boy is healed instantly. Just like that, it's done. And what Matthew wants you to see, even more so than Mark or Luke, is that Jesus has all authority to fix any problem that's there. Jesus immediately commands the demons to come out of the boy. Jesus has all power and authority over evil, over sin, over sickness. That's what Matthew wants you to see. Matthew's here, and Matthew's saying the king has come, and the king has all authority in this kingdom. But, but I don't want you to miss something that you could easily pass by. While Jesus has all power and authority to fix the problem, he didn't have to. He could have walked right on by. Not only does Jesus have power and authority, but he, he wants to. When the Father says, take pity on my son, Jesus takes pity on the boy. And oh, by the way, on the Father as well. That is the gospel, right? The message of the Bible, the message of the Christian faith, man is a problem, man can't fix himself. Jesus comes, has all authority, and wants to fix us. Those are the first two aspects of the story. Look at the rest of the folks. Because it's clear from this passage that whatever Jesus did, the problem's been fixed. The boy's been healed. I imagine the dad is very happy. And on the surface, everything seems to be going really well. But look at what happens later on in verse 19. Don't know exactly how long it is, but later, the disciples come to Jesus privately and they say this. Here's the crux of the passage, by the way. Why could we not cast it out? And Jesus says, because of your little faith. He says, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed... You'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And first of all, I want to address a couple of things that, that I don't want us to get sidetracked from. When, when Jesus says you can move a mountain from here to there, 
he's not being literal. There's no reason to move a mountain from here to there. He's making a point that when you have, he says, when you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, um, we can overcome, or the obstacles in our lives can be overcome. That's what he's saying. And by the way, don't let anybody else tell you that if you just had enough faith, you can do whatever you want to do, because that's not consistent with the rest of the Bible. Don't let anybody come to tell you that if you just had enough faith, your little boy or your little girl or your friend can be healed because that's not consistent with what God says in the rest of his word. That's not what Jesus is saying. Paul himself asked to be healed in in 1 Corinthians 12, and what does God say? No. Jesus himself says, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will. So we're not talking about if you have enough faith, you can do whatever you want. What you need to realize here is the disciples are asking how come they couldn't do it. And the reason why they're asking that question is because they've already done this before. You go back and you read Luke chapter 9, Matthew chapter 10. Jesus has already sent his disciples out. He said, go in my name, preach the gospel, and heal these folks. And they come back all excited because they've done exactly that. This time it didn't work. And they say, Jesus, what's the problem? And Jesus responds, it's kind of cryptic, isn't it? Because, I mean, think about it. It, It's because of your little faith. If you just had a little faith, you could move mountains. That's, That's what he's saying. What Jesus is saying is, you have taken your eyes off of me, and you thought you could do it without me. It's not in terms of the quantity of faith, not how big the faith is, but who they had faith in. And the question that we're asking ourselves this morning is, who are you trusting in to fix your problems? Mark, in Mark, the father says it best. You know what he says? He says, and you've heard this, I believe, help my unbelief. The disciples believe, but not in a way that enables them to do what God wanted them to do at this particular moment. Maybe Charles Taylor is right that we live in a world where believers doubt, and maybe it's true that doubters want to believe. That's the story. I want to draw out some some implications for us, but before I draw out a couple of implications for us, I've got to ask you this question, because this question has already been asked to the disciples at this point of the story. Realize that it wasn't but a couple of chapters before that Jesus asked the disciples this question, and the question is this, who do you say that I am? Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, on behalf of the disciples, gave the right answer. He said, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of the living God. You are the one that's come to bring salvation to your people. They already knew the right answer to the question. And and what I want to pose to you before we get into some of the implications of this text for us is you have to deal with that question as well. Each and every day, whether you're a Christian or not, who is Jesus? You know, 
Hal spoke about it last week. He said, he said C.S. Lewis says there's only three possible answers. You remember that? I'll paraphrase the paraphrase. Jesus is either crazy, a lunatic like a poached egg. Jesus is either a liar, the devil, or he's exactly who he says he is, the son of the living God. Tim, Tim Keller says it like this. With Jesus, you either have to crown him king or kill him. There's no middle ground with what you do with Jesus. So think about that question as I begin to show you what it is that Jesus actually does in this passage. The first thing that Jesus does in this passage that we see Jesus doing in this passage is that Jesus comes to deal with a messed up world and messed up people. That's why Jesus came. You can say it like this, Jesus comes to deal with the devil, death, and sin, and sickness. Because the devil's work has always been to enslave and distort people. You you have to realize this. The picture of this boy right here in this passage, it's not simple epilepsy. It's not just sickness. Matthew is presenting for us a picture of a human being enslaved to sin and death. Man is not right in and of himself. Man needs to be rescued. Man needs to be fixed. And and I'm not sure right now where, where you all stand in your in your self-understanding, your self-awareness. But, but when I look at my life, it is easy for me to see that I am not who I want to be. I mean, there are some days, you can ask Josie, my wife, this. There are some days where I will wake up in the morning and I will simply be mad. There are other days where I will wake up sad. There are other days that I will wake up happy. Some days I can explain it. Some days I can't, but even when I can explain it, I really don't have all that it takes to fix whatever is going on that's wrong inside me. I don't know if you can relate to that or not, but I do know this, that people's perceived need for certain things is often directed towards things that hurt them because they're trying to fix themselves and ultimately those things that they're trying to fill their lives with, they're not able to help. That's why people, part of the problem, that's why some people have problem with with drugs and alcohol. They want to be fixed. That's why some people have eating disorders. Part of the reason. That's why some people... um, are promiscuous. It's all pointing to something that is wrong deep down in our hearts. There are ultimate needs there, and we can't fix them ourselves. Let me, let me, let me read to you a quote, and, and it's kind of a long quote, but I shared it with some people, and they said that I needed to share it with you as well. C.S. Lewis writes this, about this same story and specifically about this epileptic boy. And it's a little bit long, but I I beg you to pay attention to this, okay? I'll try to read it with flair so you'll like it. C.S. Lewis says this. Not really, okay? 
We are not up against a silly man in a red costume casting little darts our way. The devil's powers work within us, within our hearts, and within our minds, leading us to self-destruction. They scar and destroy men and women made to bear God's image in the world. Do not think that you are lucky to avoid such a fate because you do not show the symptoms that this boy does. Many, even most people today, are firmly in the grip of a possession that is, if anything, stronger than this boy. Their minds have been captured by the demonic forces of materialism self-indulgence, and self-absorbed ambition. If this describes you in any way, then God's image is being just as efficiently warped in your case as in this boy's. Your destruction is all the more horrible for the ease with which it is accomplished and the economy of effort it affords the devil. If this morning you're sitting out there and you're not this boy today, there has been a time in your life when you have been this boy. Do you see that? It's but God's grace we would be tied up into sin, sickness, and the devil so that, so that the image of God is so firmly destroyed or hurt. We are the boy. Jesus doesn't just come to deal with epileptic boys or demon-possessed boys or or people wrapped up in materialism, self-indulgence, and self-absorbed ambition. He does something else as well. He comes to deal with the unbelief of his own people. You see, we are, in this passage, the unbelieving disciples. We are the doubters, those of us who have been saved by God's grace. I want you to kind of look at it like this. There's, there's two boats out there. It's on the ocean, right? One boat has people like the, the demon-possessed boy, those that haven't met Christ yet. We were all there, by the way. The other boat are those that have been saved, but they're still in a boat, Because their problem is they're doubting all the stuff that God has done for them or promises to do for them. We're all on the same ocean. One boat, by the way, is crashing, is going down. This other boat will be saved. But the waves are still rocking us to and fro. And we really would like to get off the little boat into a bigger boat. We want to see those folks in the other boat that's going down to get onto our boat. But then we all need to get off our boat and get on a bigger boat. Jesus comes to deal not only with sin, sickness, and the devil, but he comes to deal with those of us who have already been dealt with. When Jesus says, O faithless and twisted generation, another translation, unbelieving and perverse, he's talking about us. He's talking about me. He's talking about many of you. I hate to keep pointing back to Hal, but but he does come up with some good things. Hal said last week, if we didn't doubt, we wouldn't sin. If we didn't doubt the promises of God, 
We would not sin. In fact, that is the essence of, of heaven. We'll be in the presence of God, and we can't doubt anymore. I'm always fascinated by arguments over the first sin. What was it that caused Adam and Eve to, to fall, to eat the forbidden fruit? And, and if you go back and you read the scholars, even the ancient scholars, it, it all boils down to, to one of two things. It's either, it's either unbelief or pride. And I'm not sure that we should even separate them because they go hand in hand. If you're not going to believe God, then you're proud. If you're proud, you're not going to believe God. The point is this. All of life can be boiled down to one simple question. And that question is, who are you going to believe? That's what, that's what the devil asked Adam and Eve. Did God really say? What's your source of authority? Who are you placing your trust in? Who do you think is out there that can fix you? Who are you going to believe? Now the question that, I, that, that we have to come to the question is this, how do we get fixed? Whether we are the, the picture of the epileptic, the sick boy in the boat, or we're the unbelieving disciples in, in the other boat, we all want to get fixed, right? The answer is the same. And I, I've divided it up into two different, two different uh, aspects. First of all, wherever you are on those boats, the first thing that I want to share with you is Something that I'm sure that you've heard over and over again, but I'm going to continue to say it over and over again because we need to be keep being reminded of it, and that is we need to see Jesus Christ, who He is, and look to what He does. Look, look at how I, I, have, I have problems. Before I preach, I wake up in the middle of the night and come up with a good idea, so I have a notepad. This is, this is what I came up with late last night. I'm telling you to look to Jesus Christ. Peter describes Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. John says that He is the Word become flesh. Paul refers to Him, calls Him the, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, the man Christ Jesus. Hebrews says He's the radiance of the glory of God, the one who takes on flesh and blood. And last week we learned from Thomas, my Lord and my God. Why am I telling you all those things? Because Mark Jones, who's a New Testament scholar, says the power of the gospel is unleashed when doubting Christians see the beauty of the person of Jesus Christ and the power of His work on our behalf, and He says, look to the glory of Christ first and then behold what He does for us. Have you dealt with the question of who is Jesus? And if you already have, are you continuing to address that question day in and day out? Look to Jesus. There's another aspect to how we get fixed. Whether you're the epileptic boy, whether you are the, the unbelieving disciples. You need to find other people who are doing this. Looking to Jesus. Because being transformed into the image of Christ or, or growing in your little faith 
It only happens in community. It happens with God's people. It happens on the Lord's day. It happens around this table. It happens in small groups. It it happens tonight at prayer group. Okay? And and let let me just give you a clue as to who you need to look to. Who you need to seek out. Because it'll surprise you a little bit. It's not the ones who have it all together. It's not the ones who think they have all the answers. It's not the ones who will even tell you that they have a strong faith. You need to go find other Christians who are struggling, who are aware of their weakness, who will even claim that they don't have it all together and latch yourself onto them and you all together, us together, look to Jesus Christ. And you should be asking me right now, where do I see that in this passage? Because I'll tell you where I see this in, in this passage. The pattern that we see about growing to look to Christ, it's seen in the lives of the disciples here. And the pattern goes something like this, and it's seen in this passage. The pattern of, of growing your faith, I don't even like to talk in those terms, but the, the, the pattern of, of how do we grow in, in not doubting God, it's advanced failure, advance, failure, advance, failure. That, that, you realize Peter has this high point moment when Jesus asks him who I am and he gets it right and he's, he's probably jumping up and down and saying, yeah, and you know what happens right away? He gets something wrong and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And, and you realize it's the pattern of the disciples here. They'd already done this healing. And, and not a few chapters later, they are messing it all up. Let me, let me tell you what the Christian life looks like. This comes from a book, Things That Can't Be Shaken. The more we grow, the more sin we will see in our lives. The more sin that we see in our lives, the more we will go to Jesus for forgiveness. And the more we go to Jesus for forgiveness, the more our affection for Jesus grows. And the more our affection for Jesus grows, the more we will be changed. You want to have a faith that's not bounced around to and fro on on the waves of the world. Look to Jesus Christ. And how do we look to Jesus Christ? As you look to Jesus Christ, the more sin you'll see in your lives, the more sin you'll see in your lives, the more you'll drop on your knees to Jesus for forgiveness. The more you go to Jesus for forgiveness, the more your love for Jesus will grow. And the more your love for Jesus grows, the more you are changed. That's the gospel. Eugene Peterson, there are no experts in the company of Jesus. We are all beginners. Let me conclude this way. See if I can put this together for us. Do you, do you remember, I, I've said it, I think, several times. You remember how much the Father loved the Son in this passage? Take pity on my Son, says to Jesus. He, he, he would have done anything, I think, so that his child could be helped. Listen, for, for those of you that are, are parents, or for those of you that, that, that have loved ones, if you truly love somebody, when they hurt, you hurt. When they struggle, 
you struggle. His father is struggling, hurting, because his son needs help. I I need you to realize that as much as that father loves his son, as much as you love your loved ones, whoever they may be, it's nothing compared to how much our Heavenly Father loved His beloved Son and, oh, by the way, loves us. Conjure up the most beautiful, perfect love you've ever seen in your life from a human standpoint, and it's nothing compared to how much God the Father loves God the Son, and it's nothing how much God the Father loves you, and it's nothing compared to how much God the Father loves even your children or your loved ones. And yet, our Heavenly Father sends His beloved Son not just to die for us, but but to live for us. God taking on flesh ought to blow your minds. Sends His Son to take on flesh, to live in this world, to, to, to be surrounded by a bunch of people that They love him, but don't really love him. He leaves the glory of the mountain, so to speak, and comes down to this faithless and twisted generation, and he dies for us. Why? He dies for us so that we could be healed, and he dies for us so that we could believe, so that we could not doubt. Let me conclude this way. Jesus asked two questions in this passage, right? And he seems kind of harsh. He does seem kind of harsh. He says, I mean, it would hurt my feelings, kind of, if Jesus said, faithless and unbelieving Todd. That should hurt your feelings. But he doesn't stop there. He asks a couple of rhetorical questions. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? You know what the answer is. The answer is, as long as it takes. And if that doesn't turn your eyes to Jesus, then I'm not sure anything else will. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have made a promise to us and you have kept that promise to us. And I thank you that even in the midst of our doubt and even in the midst of our uncertainty that you hold us in your hands. And we do say with with the Father, uh, I believe, help my unbelief. We confess, we confess now that we do not trust you like we ought to trust you. We don't trust you as you deserve to be trusted. And yet you continue to hold on to us and we know that it's because you're continuing to hold on to us that that we're safe, that we're sound. And Father, if there be anybody here this morning that that is bound up in in the grip of this world that hasn't met you yet, I, I pray that you would soften their heart. I pray that you would get them out of that boat. And I pray that you would put them in the, the boat that, that some of us have been uh, graciously dealt with. 
and that together we could learn to to better trust you even as we look to Jesus Christ, even as we confess our faith in him, even as we confess our unbelief. For it's for Jesus' glory and his sake we ask. It's for Jesus' glory that we can trust. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.